This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 11, Episode 39. This is Writing Excuses, Q&A on relationships with Greg Van Eekhout. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. I'm Dan. And we have special guest star Greg Van Eekhout. Did I pronounce that right? Perfect. That was amazing. Excellent. <laughs> Tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm a novelist. Uh, I write middle grade and books for adults, science fiction and fantasy. Um, and my interests are walking on the beach And we are live at Phoenix Comic Con. Thank you to our lovely and intelligent audience here because they have provided for us a bunch of questions, which I am going to throw at the podcasters. Not not literally. (laughs) Well, you can't tell. So let's see. Cindy asks, what is your favorite way to establish relationships? Is it through dialogue or is it through background or is it through narrative? How is it? My, my favorite is dialogue. <laughs> Thank you for throwing that question at me, Brandon. Um, my, my favorite is dialogue, mm-hmm. uh, although now I'm considering that action might be a very nice <laughs> technique also because you can do... Oh, darn it. Completely missed it. <laughs> um, because, but I feel like one of the things that uh, dialogue can do for you very quickly is establish the kind of relationship people have by the the wordplay, the, mm-hmm. the the history, mm-hmm. the backstory, um, and their degree of comfort level. You can tell that very quickly whether they have a formal relationship or informal or what have you. Yeah, I, I remember watching a TV show several years ago where um, one character was concerned about her own marriage and was sitting in a, like at a group party with some friends and, and saw her other married friend picking all the pickles off of her husband's hamburger and said, why are you doing that? And said, oh, because I know he doesn't like them. And that clarified for her this kind of long-held intimacy that she was looking for in her own relationship. And so I always try to put that kind of stuff in, you know, just to show through action characters that know each other really well. Yeah. Question here, how do you... Recover when a relationship between a hero and a supporting character start to feel forced. I like to th- throw something in the in the works that messes up what's going on. So if they're mm. breaking into a bank, that's a perfect point for them to open the safe and actually have the guards with the guns be inside the vault. Mm. And uh, I'm a real fan of banter, so that's a perfect opportunity for them to sort of engage in their characteristic banter. But now it's in a context where it's actually. Um, Things are going severely wrong, and they actually have to adjust their relationship on the fly. Yeah, banter is my is my go-to, and uh, as as was pointed out in a discussion that I don't know if we actually recorded, uh, the the principle of comic drop, which we talked a little bit about during humor, um, which is a change in the in the status between two people people who are talking, depending on the relationship that they have, I may or may not have a comic drop in that conversation because I mean there's jokes throughout my writing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I may not be able to use that tool if these two people are conversing and bantering and at the end of the conversation they remain on equal standing how do you show a best friend relationship mm. uh, this is uh, it's this is one of those weird ones because 
a lot of the tools that you use for showing a best friend relationship are actually the same things that you use for showing a romantic relationship, which is intimacy and dialogue and a degree of, of physical comfort with each other. The thing that you leave out is, um, is the gaze, which is uh, the, the thinking about the potential for sexy fun times. <laughs> well... Um. <laughs> I, we talked about this a little bit with, uh, with Locke and Jean from yeah. Lies of Locke Lamora, but one of the things that defines them to me as best friends is that they stay together even when they fight. Yeah. You know, which is not to say that I really fight with my friends a lot, but that sense that we're not just together because it's easy. We're together because we like each other no matter what. Yeah, I would define a best friendship relationship in terms of loyalty and forgiveness. So you can tell who the best friends are in any cast of characters when every other character is turning their backs on the character who's really screwed up. And the best friend who's just as angry as every other character is the one who's still there. So when doing romance, how do you decide to move fast or slow? In real life or? (laughs) (laughs) Always go slow. (laughs) You got to get there fast and take it slow. Beach Boys. (laughs) Oh, it's so many men on this panel. <laughs> um, I th- it, it depends on the kind of book you're writing. Mm. Uh, like, honestly, if you're writing erotica, you need to get to the romance pretty much on page one, mm. and they jump immediately to sexy fun times, which they then proceed to have for the rest of the book, because that's why you're reading the book. Uh, with other types of relationships that romance is going to build much more slowly. Um, One of my favorite romances is in Dorothy Sayers. Those are primarily a mystery, but the romance between Harriet Vane and Lord Peter Whimsey builds over the course of multiple novels. So it really depends on the kind of ride you want to take your reader on. Do you try to make the nature of the relationship between characters clear, or do you often leave things to subtext? Do you use different techniques to write different types? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a whole episode by itself. It feels mm. like, wow. Well, one of the things, uh, the, the relationship structure in Schlock Mercenary uh, is dependent on, on two key factors. One is how much do these people actually like working together, and the other is what is their relative rank because there is a there is a rigid hierarchy and i find that when i am writing discussions between a senior officer and a junior officer or between a sergeant and a grunt i have to take that into account because that power dynamic is if that power dynamic isn't there then it stops reading military mm. the relationships the the military aspect of the relationship stops being believable i, I think the other aspect of that is that how close the characters are uh, kind of governs how much subtext you use uh, you know, if you've got someone that you've been friends with for a really long time, you know that frequently your conversation consists of single words that represent a joke that you have had between you for decades. That's subtext to a large degree. It's, it's the conversation that happens between the lines of text. So I think the, you know, one of the ways to demonstrate that you have people who are very close is to use that as mm. a tool. All right, here is um, an interesting one that I'm not sure... If we can answer, um, how do you approach writing a relationship with a transsexual character without making it stiff or unnatural? 
I would like to defer that because yes. I yeah. do not defer. have. I, I would say that this is something you need to talk to people who have primary experience with it. Yeah. Um, though I will say that um, I have watched interviews with transsexual people talking about this, and they say this seems to be of great interest to people who are not transsexual, but in the relationship, it feels very natural to them, and it isn't as big a deal sometimes as people make it, but that's just hearsay. Uh, for questions like this, you really need to go to primary sources and talk to them. Yeah. I mean, in, in general, you need to be treating characters yes. like people, mm -hmm. um, but there are specific aspects that I just do not have primary experience with. What are your favorite relationships to write? I like writing happy marriages, and mm. it maddens me that people think that you cannot write a happily married couple because that they have this idea that happily married couples have no conflict. <laughs> like Anyone who is in a happy marriage knows that that is not true. Why is the garbage still in the kitchen? <laughs> I am loving reading your unnamed secret project story that we can't talk about, which does involve... To characters we, in we can, a... We can okay, talk, but we, okay. we, it just it doesn't have a title. Okay, okay. Um, the, the Lady Astronaut story that you're yeah. working on in novel form um, has a happily married couple, and it is great. Thank you. Yeah, and that's, that's one of those things that I feel like isn't modeled enough. Mm. Um, so I, I love writing happily married couples. You know what I really like is similar, is a family unit yes. that is functional. Yes! Mm -hmm. I love reading those, too, because <laughs> I never get to. <laughs> I like writing about new friendships. I find mm. that exciting, and um, it's, an, it's an unknown. We have no idea where this thing is going to go. And it's also a struggle, and it's fun, and it's exciting. So a lot of my books start with... Uh, a protagonist and the person that's going to be like um, the Horatio meeting for the first time. Can I ask you more on that? And then we'll get to the other ones. But there was a question that said, how do I write a starting relationship, a friendship or things between two characters that the reader doesn't even know well yet? How, did, how does someone start off with that? I always think of it in terms of uh, what the character needs and what they want at that particular given time. And mm. if both those characters want and need something that's either similar so they have to work together, or it's completely opposite, so they actually have to work against each other, it usually kind of sorts itself out. And as mm. long as you have, and again, banter is your best friend in that, um, that dialogue is going to help you sort of figure out how these two people are going to interact in a way that's kind of exciting to explore, and it's fun for the reader to figure out at the same time. And it doesn't feel like a lot of throat clearing, like the writer trying to figure right. out how it's going to work. Dan and Howard, favorite types of relationships? Yeah, um, I love writing prickly antagonist kind of relationships, you know, which, you know, that, that's John Cleaver and virtually mm -hmm. everyone he talks to, you know, right. his mom or whatever cop is currently getting in his way. Uh, some people who have to work together but don't like each other. I love that. Mm. I like writing the, the working relationship where in the course of that relationship, the characters are discovering each other's competencies mm. because that reveal that reveal is just a lot of fun. And that can be, if you've set up the try-fail cycle right, a stand-up-and-cheer moment that makes us rejoice in the friendship, even though the friendship was never really at threat. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So let's go ahead and stop for our book of the week, which is one of Greg's book books. Will you pitch to us Dragon Coast? Yeah, well, actually, no. I'm going to oh. pitch to you uh, the first book in the trilogy, okay, California Bones. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a contemporary fantasy. It takes place in Los Angeles. And the idea is that wizards get their powers from eating the bones of extinct magical creatures. Huh. So you eat a dragon bone, you get some properties of the dragon. It takes place in Los Angeles, so you have the La Brea Tar Pits there. So the Tar Pits, at one point, have been rich with bones of griffins and dragons mm. and unicorns. And since Los Angeles was sort of the center of magical wealth... It's a focus of a lot of power struggle. But, of course, if you have bones in the tar pits, it's, um, it's not a renewable resource. Right. So now the magic is scarce, and it's hoarded by the very powerful. And uh, my heroes are sort of a group of uh, thieves. They go mm. on heists to steal the most potent and magical bones there are. The other thing is, if you're one of these wizards, an osteomancer, and you uh, eat the bones of another osteomancer, you get that person's magical oh, wow. powers. Oh, so, uh, so you, it's literally, I'm, I'm in. It's, in other words, it's pretty much Los, <laughs> like Los Angeles. You eat or you be what's, what's the title again, Greg? The title of the first book is California Bones. Mm. Uh, the second one, Pacific Coast, comes out in paperback next month. Uh, and then the third and concluding book is Dragon Coast, which is right now in hardcover. Awesome. Um, and they sound wonderful. Oh, also, at uh, right now, only here at Phoenix Comic Con, I did a one-shot comic book adaptation, which is a prequel short story to oh. California Bones, illustrated by Ryan Cody, who's a great artist. You can get it at Ryan's booth, and this is not relevant to people who are listening, unfortunately. <laughs> but right now here at Phoenix Comic Con, you can get it at table 1508 in Artist's Alley. And uh, I just got an email from Comixology, Comixology yesterday. Uh, it's been approved, so it's just a matter of them so getting it online. So our listeners may be able to pick this up on Comixology probably six months a, down the road. Probably actually in about a month. Mm, Ho- hopefully in about a month awesome. or two. Yeah. Excellent. So next question is, um, Mark asks, how do you transform love into hate and vice versa? Time. Mm. <laughs> Money. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> Betrayal. Mm. Yeah, um, betrayal will, will definitely. Yeah, betrayal is the the easiest one. The, the, there are a lot of things you'll you'll have a friend who, um, you know, has small annoying quirks and things like that. But she looked right at me when she said that. <laughs> no, I, I was I wasn't looking. It was Howard. I mean, no. It's, um, <laughs> Do I have to throw a question at you guys? No. Um, but this is uh, this is unfortunately one of those things that I can speak to, to from personal experience because mm. I and I'm going to try to talk about this without specifics. But I um, worked with a, a dear friend for 15 years, or not worked with. We you know we were both in the same industry and we knew each other for 15 years and had never worked on a project together. And we were both really super looking forward to it. And I knew he was a problematic personality, and that on every project he would pick someone to hate. But I was always like, you know, he's, he's troubled, it'll be fine, you know, and we would always reassure whoever it was, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. And then this project, I was the person he picked. Mm. And it was uh, close to a year of um, mental abuse and sabotage on the job. And uh, it was it was really it was really awful. And I now kill him off in multiple books. <laughs> I have friends who have killed him off in their fiction, sometimes more than once. Um, 
That was so much fun. That was a delightful <laughs> thing. Thank you, Howard. Um, but it was it was the thing that that did it was you know betrayal. That was mm-hmm. that was the thing that. And that also made me realize that um, that I had actually been a terrible person by defending him all of those years. Well, you know, I've actually seen this. It didn't happen to me, but I've seen this person. You're like, oh, they do this thing to people, yeah. right? And you're like, oh, it's this thing. But then it turns towards someone that is close to you, and you're like, oh, they are the next in line. And the person doesn't even know they're doing it yeah. the, often. But, man, it can be excruciating when that happens. Yeah. Anyway, we can't go into specifics on those. No. Um, let's do, when writing a love triangle, how do you keep from making it obvious the final couple, couple ahead of time? You need to make them both plausible choices. Mm. You know? If, if a... A woman is choosing between two men or a, or a man between two, whoever, you know. Um, make both of those love interests, you know, like we were talking about the, the half orange where they complete each other. You, both of them complete you. And so that makes it, that makes the conflict that much more difficult to resolve. And it makes it so you can't predict how it ends. Yeah. My mom actually asked my dad to marry her and she said, and she was dating more than one guy because this was this was the 60s um and uh and I asked her how how she knew and and she said the other man asked me to marry him and I realized that it I didn't want to be with him I wanted to be with your father for the rest of my life and I was like oh okay notes for love triangles <laughs> um the, the 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 and I think that thing about the that Dan is talking about is that the choice is not clear to the main character themselves. Um, little known thing about Shades of Milk and Honey, uh, the, uh, the, the, couple, the happily married couple that goes through the rest of my series, in my original draft, they didn't wind up together. Mm. It was the other man. Mm. Well, this, and that's the Agatha Christie method. Yes. Mm-hmm. Don't know who it is. Yourself. Yourself until mm. the end of the book. Yeah. All right, I'm going to end with recommendations for books that focus on familial friend relationships rather than romance. You, you were just talking about familiar. Mm-hmm. You should take that one. Um, uh, well, that was, uh, yeah, on, on family. Well, um, uh-huh, what uh-huh. I was thinking about was my own, and I don't want to. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's like, it was our favorite to write. And right, so I'm right. like, I like writing the Stormlight Archive because I have a father with two sons that have a functional family relationship. Yeah. That's what, so I have to think of ones that I like that do that also. Yeah. The, 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 friendships, the friendships between uh, the witches in Terry Pratchett's Oh, yeah. That's oh, a very yeah. good one. I love them because mm-hmm. they snipe at each other, but that they have each other's backs to the end of the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the mother-daughter relationship in uh, the Wrinkle in Time series. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah. And actually, the father-daughter, actually, mm-hmm. once yeah. the father comes into it. Yeah. Actually, Nancy Drew and her dad. Mm-hmm. Okay. Veronica Mars and her dad. Yeah, oh, that's such a good relationship. Yeah. You got one? No, I got nothing. All right. <laughs> that's a great way to end the episode, Greg. Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, well, why don't we end with a writing prompt instead? Um, Greg, you've got a writing prompt for us. Yeah. How about take a look at the actual place you live, the, uh, the city or the neighborhood, the general region, and find some source of magic that is specific to that location. That uh, if your story were taking someplace else, taking place someplace else, the magic would have to be different. Something endemic to where you live. 
All right. So thank you, audience at Comic Con. Thank you, Greg Van Eekout. Thank you, guys. This is fun. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.